Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode I'm joined by a stand-up who's celebrated on the comedy circuits for her no-holds-barred approach to disability. She wants to see a world where people aren't defined by what they can't do, but what they can. And with her first book, she's asking, what the four stars is normal? She's seriously funny. She's a self-proclaimed wobbly comedian, Francesca Martinez. I'm not allowed to call her Francesca. Chess, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, this book is part of your ongoing quest to find an answer to the question, what is normal anyway? Have you managed to find a normal person yet? I'm still looking. Um, Well, I'll start with you. Are you normal? Certainly not. Well, this is what most people say. And I think if anyone does think they're normal, they're a freak. So it's quite an interesting concept because I think as a society, we accept that there is a normal. But then when you actually go and probe people... They say, no, of course I'm not normal. And obviously I was labelled abnormal from a very young age. So I've had this intense relationship with the idea of normality. It's quite strange, you know, growing up in a world that sees you as abnormal. Because as a child, I felt totally normal. And uh, I remember when my parents were told that I was wobbly, they were told two things. They were told that I would never lead a normal life. And when I heard that, I was like, who wants a normal life anyway? (laughs) I want an amazing life. Agreed. That's my conclusion. So what the four stars is normal is about questioning labels, asking why they exist and what for. Now, you were diagnosed with cerebral palsy when you were two years old. Let's hear your thoughts on the label and why you prefer to describe yourself as wobbly in an extract from the audiobook which you read yourself. I'm wobbly. That's how I describe myself. Because the words cerebral and palsy are as attractive as an ingrowing toenail with a fungal infection. The former evokes something cold, clinical, distant. The latter sounds like Shakespeare. God's mercy, I have a palsy. The devil feasteth upon my face. Or something like that. In short, cerebral palsy is as far away from sexy as Rupert Murdoch is from a social conscience. OK, maybe not quite that far, but you get my drift. Does the medical world hold secret competitions to see who can concoct the label most likely to impede one's sexual relations forever? It's as if a party of highfalutin consultants take turns to pick words out of a tombola brimful of polysyllabic sibilants designed to induce pant-wetting dread at the very sound or sight of them. Disease, disorder, syndrome, dystrophy, sclerosis. Not just one sclerosis, multiple sclerosis. How liberating was it when you decided to rip up that label of cerebral palsy? It was the most liberating act I'd done. I think I was about 19 or 20, 
And it was a profound moment because in one sense, they're just words we talked about, but in another sense, it was unbelievable to realise that cerebral palsy was not an objective truth. It was just a label that a human being somewhere had made up to define me. And when I realised that, I thought, well, I don't actually have to accept this label. I wasn't faulty or abnormal or broken. I was just perfectly me, Francesca. And Francesca was wobbly and there was no value judgment anymore. And that set me on the road to realising that, you know, every human being on this planet is different. And life is so precious, and it's such a crime to spend it hating yourself. So it, it, it sparked off a really long chain of events which utterly transformed my whole life. Bravo. Okay, <laughs> now, Chess, you brought along five objects that shaped and inspired your book. Now, your first object links to an important theme in the book, your relationship with your family. Why have you brought along a photograph of yourself with your grandparents? My grandparents were like a second set of parents to me. They represent the love that I had in my life from my family. And it's really funny because... I think having a close family has had far more of a defining factor on my life than being wobbly has. And I think, actually, one of the key things I wanted to challenge in this book was this kind of link between physical so-called perfection and happiness. Because we live in a culture which assumes that if your body doesn't work a certain way, you're more likely to suffer. Now, I think that's an incredibly superficial assumption to make. And I can honestly say now that any so-called suffering I've had in my life hasn't been because I've been wobbly. It's been because I've lived in a culture which can't handle difference. They do very different things. Because one of the kind of realisations I had when I had my big moment was, wow, my insecurities had nothing really to do with being wobbly. They were as a result of living in a culture with a very superficial value system that made everyone feel not good enough. Because I go around the country and I meet so many people, young, beautiful people, and they all hate themselves. And I'm like... Wow, this is normal for people to hate themselves. And they say to me, Francesca, you're so inspirational for liking yourself. I'm like, how sad is that? That it's become inspirational to like yourself. So I think it's quite an indictment for our culture. So I think if we really want to reduce suffering, we should create a culture with a healthier value system. Okay, your early childhood seems to have been idyllic, but then came high school. And if your family are the heroes of your story, then some of the teachers and girls you encountered at school are definitely the villains. Yeah, high school was a really tough time because, as you say, I I was coming into it from this incredible haven of 
love and as a result of that I was incredibly confident and robust and I, I, I guess you could say I also had a big dollop of denial because I really didn't see myself as disabled but then high school, high school changed all of that and it was a, a massive wake-up call for me so over the process of like maybe a year, I had this reality shock, which was, wow, you may feel really normal and happy and confident in yourself, but the world around you does not see you like this. And that was incredibly hard to come to terms with. But there was a beacon of light in your dark school years. There was. Which was your drama lessons, right? Yes. Now, why do you think you fell in love with being on stage and performing? I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're an actor, and I don't know when that love arrived for you, but for me, it was almost before I could speak. I just... (laughs) I I just love being in the centre of attention, I guess. And I love performing, and fundamentally, I love making people laugh. Yeah. And I think if if we want to go all psychological, you could say that I really loved playing characters and and being in my imagination because in my real life there were limitations that I couldn't transcend. And so I lived full drama at school. And it was only one hour a week, but that hour was enough to keep me going through the whole week. And it, it kind of helped me... I guess, hold on to a shred of happiness at school. Likewise. Let's hear the moment that you told your careers advisor, Miss Murray, what you wanted to be in a clip from the audiobook of What the Four Stars is Normal. I'm going to be an actress. Miss Murray looked over the top of her glasses and put down her pen. An actress? She said softly, Yes, I love acting. It's my favourite thing to do in the world, I replied. The thing is, acting is a very difficult profession. She trailed off. I know, but I want to give it a shot, I said, dripping with enthusiasm. Right, but um, maybe you should consider something a bit more secure. Something like IT. Ethel had suggested that too. What was it with me and bloody computers? We were being pushed together like two unenthusiastic singles at a party. By the way, if you're ever saddled with a beautiful label disabled, be prepared for people's expectations of you to plummet to frightfully low levels. So low, in fact, that the world's best limbo dancer couldn't scrape under them. I just want to do something I love, I said, ignoring her. She stared at me for a moment before dropping her eyes to the floor, perhaps remembering some distant passion she'd once held before deciding to spend her days politely crushing other people's dreams. Miss Murray didn't have much hope for you and your acting career, but you were about to prove her wrong. Why have you brought along a Grange Hill script? Because uh, Grange Hill, I guess, represented a whole new path in my life. 
had that clip showed. Yeah. I, I banged on about wanting to be an actress all the time, and people would either laugh or tell me to go into computers. So I didn't re- receive much encouragement, apart from my parents, who were really great and was like, go for it, go for it. So... I was incredibly astounded to find out that one of my teachers had read an advert asking for teachers to recommend disabled students to them, the producers of Grain Chill, because they wanted to cast a new disabled character. And unbeknown to me, one of my support workers had recommended me and the producer set up a meeting and came to my house and I met her and I was probably the most excited I'd ever been in my entire existence <laughs> and I struggled to sit still yeah. and I tried to convince her that I was her character and um, she was very amused particularly because at that time I didn't have a TV because we grew up with no TV in our house, because I think my parents were like, you're brain damaged enough, we don't want <laughs> more shit in your head. So I remember the producer saying to me, what do you think of Grain Chill, Francesca? And I said, I haven't got a TV. And she laughed. So I was actually on TV before I had one. <laughs> uh, and two weeks later, I had an audition, and then I had another one. And then I received a letter on New Year's Day telling wow. me that I'd been picked and I got this far. And I went to school, as you can imagine, a little bit smug. <laughs> and I walked in and the girls were like, so what happened with the audition? I just said, oh, yeah, I got it. I start in April. They were like, it's against the ancient laws of the universe. <laughs> this cannot happen. So the grandchild was unbelievable. It got me out of school nine months a year legally. So I'm very happy but stupid. But how did you find seeing yourself on screen for the first time? That really had an effect on you, didn't it? It did. It was really difficult. I, I was one of these actors who loved the process, loved rehearsal, loved filming. Yeah. But when it came to watching myself, the first time again it was another reality shock and I remember sitting at home watching this thin girl wobble down the road thinking oh my god she's so wobbly (laughs) and she looks so vulnerable and that was really difficult because I was still in the denial stage where I would You know, I'd do anything I could not to be confronted with my difference. Mm -hmm. So, of course, watching yourself on TV was hugely problematic. So very quickly, I I stopped that. I went out of the room whenever I was on. I felt ashamed of my difference. And I felt like that girl on screen is not a girl I want to be. Oh. Cheska, we're going to dip back into your audiobook now. This is you describing your inner turmoil at that time. It became increasingly harder to be myself. I devised more and more elaborate ruses to conceal my disability. 
this was futile, but it didn't stop me trying. I go to parties and not drink because I didn't want to ask for a straw and stand for hours on end because I didn't want to ask for a chair. When I was out, I'd stop in my tracks if someone was walking towards me, hoping they'd think I was normal, although there's nothing normal about a girl suddenly standing still in the middle of a pavement and staring intently at her feet. The incessant monologue that dominated my thoughts got louder and louder any time I found myself surrounded by strangers. It kicked in whenever I left the house. If I'd spotted teenage boys, I'd hear, Look at those boys, yeah, them. I bet they're thinking what a freak you are. I bet they're going to talk about how crap your walking is and laugh at how ridiculously shaky you are. And they'd never go out with someone like you, even if you were the last woman on earth. They'd rather let the human race die out than engage in any physical contact with you. Now, you've said that you're a hopeless romantic, and this is evident in your next object. Now, you've brought along a poem that you wrote to your first love, Dylan. Uh, would you treat us to a reading of the poem? Oh, Please. my goodness. Come on. This is terrible. Excellent. OK, let me, let me set the scene first of okay. all. OK, all right. So, basically, as you heard, I was in a very dark place, and it's quite sad for me to... To hear that back and also the writing of that was quite an emotional thing because I remembered how miserable I was and uh, she's a really different person to me now. Yeah. So it's kind of sad to remember how much I hated myself. So I was in a very dark place and I somehow found myself um, at a stand-up comedy workshop of all places and at this workshop there was a guy called Dylan and we didn't really speak for a few weeks but then one night after a session I found myself in a pub with him and for some reason I said to him I'm brain damaged as you do great conversation don't know and he said to me, what? And I said, I'm, I'm brain damaged. And he said, what? I said, are you deaf? I'm brain damaged. He said, no, you're not. That's just a label other human beings have made up to define you. You are perfectly you. And I was like, I love you. And it may sound really cliche, but in that moment, those words changed my life. And I, of course fell head over heels in love with him because he not only said those amazing words, but he was really hot too. So that is a great combo, isn't it? Yeah. Philosophical and hot. What more could I want at 19? And we began to write each other these poems because he loved writing poems and I loved writing poems. And my love just grew and grew and grew and grew. And I began during our meetings to not hear a word he said. All I could think about was, how do I tell you that I love you? So after much soul-searching, 
I decided the best way to communicate my love to this person would be to give him a poem. And here it comes. And here it is. So I did not only give it to him as in send it to him, I gave it to him in person in my car. So you must imagine that he's sitting next to me as he reads it and I'm just staring at the steering wheel like a mental woman. You astound me, confound me, surround me in a haze for days. Your voice plays in the garden of my mind. Drench me in bliss with your kiss, like summer rain falling, pelting, each pouted drop melting into me. You I adore and implore to explore my uncharted seas, please. You arouse me, you douse me in sexual petroleum. What the fuck? Then ignite me, excite me with a smile, a touch. It's too much. My hands long to trace, to embrace the hills and valleys of your being. And my eyes beg to drink from the pouring, roaring, soaring fountain of beauty. That is your face. Your beautiful face is such a place that on inspection and much reflection I deem it to be drowned in perfection. Do you think it gets the message across? Yeah, but Dylan taught you to like yourself. Now let's hear your epiphany in an extract from the audiobook of What the Four Stars is Normal. It had taken four and a half billion years for me to be here. Right now, in this universe, and in that moment, I felt totally overwhelmed at being alive. There could have been nothing, but there was everything. I didn't want to waste a single second more of my life worrying about trivialities, worrying that I'd never match up to an ideal that didn't even exist. Nobody is normal. We are all different. I had to make sure that every moment I had left on this planet counted. I knew that nothing would be the same again after that. A jolt of appreciation for everything I had experienced surged through me, pure as raw diamond. I like myself, I said out loud in tonight's listening ear. I like myself, I repeated with more conviction. I said those words every night for a long time and I never looked back. Every teenager should have the embossed on their walls. Now, your next object marks the moment that you discovered what you were meant to do in your life and you brought along the Daily Telegraph Award for Best New Comedian. Can you sum up how you felt when your name was announced? Um, Well, um, after meeting Dylan, having that conversation, I began to actually speak in my comedy workshops and I was persuaded to do a gig. And this was another profound moment in my life because even though I was so terrified, I was sick with nerves, I think I breathed three times in five minutes, I performed it terribly... It was incredible because people laughed. And 
it was the first time since my childhood that I'd mentioned my wobbliness in public. I kind of thought that being wobbly was like being gay and it was invisible. Mm-hmm. And so this was my coming out of the wobbly closet moment. And so I stood on stage <laughs> shaking like a leaf yeah. and I started to joke about being wobbly. And what happened was the room laughed and I felt all the nerves fly away and disappear. And I realised, oh, my goodness, Francesca, you've got it so wrong. You know, the path to acceptance isn't to try and be normal, it's to embrace who you are. And that connection to a room full of strangers was incredibly addictive. And I went home after this gig and I said to my family, I know what I'm meant to do, guys. I'm meant to be a comedian. So I began to gig. And then a year after that first gig, I found myself at the Edinburgh Festival in this big final, the Daily Telegraph Open Mic Award. And I found myself being the only female in the final. So it was me and nine other boys. I did a gig... And I, I sat backstage and I was thinking, I, I'm really proud. If I haven't ended up in computers. <laughs> I might be OK. And then the host announced my name. And it was a wonderful moment, I think, because it showed me that maybe there was a real possibility I could do this. You have to have some level of Mm self-acceptance to go up on stage and say, hey, guys, this is me. And it forced me to do that. It forced me to accept myself. And through doing so, I not only accept myself, but I, I became proud of myself. So people often feel nervous or uncomfortable around disabled people. Now, do you feel that some audiences are initially unsure about how to react to your jokes? And does that change as the show goes on and they get to know you? Well, it was really funny because when I started in this workshop, I, I made a, you know, a whole group of new comic buddies. And I remember they were all really jealous of me for being wobbly. Because they were like, you are so lucky. You have a unique perspective. A unique selling point. Yes. A USP. And I'd never viewed being wobbly as a pro in any way. So this was like incredible. Like, you're viewing my brain damage is good? Wow. And I remember I had a friend, Tom, and he was a like, white middle-class guy, and he was saying, you're so lucky, I wish I only had one leg. <laughs> my first line when I started used to be, in case you're wondering, the correct word for my condition is sober. Because um, so many yeah. people thought I was drunk. And and usually that would just break Release them. the ice. Yeah. And what was interesting is to see how quickly those collective nerves disappeared. Literally, I'd say within two, three lines, they were gone. Because all they needed to know was, does she know she's wobbly? <laughs> yes, I do. Is she okay with it? 
Yes, I am. It gets me out of a lot of housework. It's great. <laughs> and is she funny? And that's what I love about comedy. It's totally based on are you funny? Yeah. They don't care about how you walk, how you talk, what Just you look like. Laugh. Just make us laugh. And I loved that equality. Well, we're going to dip back into the audiobook now to hear why you first fell in love with comedy. I threw myself into gigging with a passion. It was so thrilling to dive into this whole new scene, so rich with ideas and secrets waiting to be discovered. The thought of learning a new craft was exciting, and I felt I'd found something that was endlessly fascinating, which could never bore me. Part of the appeal was the ability to create my own world on stage. For the first time in my life, I didn't feel I was being compared with anyone else or measured against someone else's standards. When I performed, it was my take on life that mattered. I chose what labels were used and what perspective was shared with the audience. It was an empowering feeling to turn parts of my life into comedy and I felt a sense of freedom unlike ever before. No gig was too far away and no crowd was too small. I've performed to two old men and a dog, one old man and two dogs, one barman and two bouncers, four grumpy women and a man who shouted alligator at random moments. Some shows were great, others less so. It's hard to compete with the live England match blasting out from the telly at the side of the stage, but they were all valuable learning experiences and I tried to get as much stage time as possible. I was beginning to enjoy the tension created by my wobbly appearance on stage. If comedy is about the build-up and release of tension, then I was lucky to be able to create mountains of the stuff just by walking out. And now your final object is a mug from your partner, Kevin. But no ordinary mug. No ordinary mug. I'm holding it right in front of me and it says, may I read what it says on yeah. it? It says, you knock me sideways and it is a sideways leaning tower of pizza mug. Yeah. Pizza. I call it my wobbly mug. Your wobbly mug. Yeah. Basically, I bought this in because, uh, okay, so Dylan, yeah. the hot philosophical guy, yes. he turned out to be an arsehole. <laughs> um, he, you know, but the beautiful thing was that arseholes can change your life. Yeah. And he was my arsehole that changed my life. He yes. was yours. He was. And I think, you know, we all need them as we grow up to teach us who to avoid. Yeah. But obviously I was broken-hearted and I met a few other assholes after him because I was quite good at attracting them. I was, you know, I was struggling on the romantic front because I was a real hopeless romantic. But I wasn't meeting anyone who actually fulfilled my image. Until Kevin. Until Kevin, and can I just say my image, yeah. my my absolute perfect man was a poor Irish poet yeah. who lived in a cottage on the moor, surrounded by bracken, and <laughs> all he had in his house <laughs> were books, and he would write me poems every day. 
and we just sit by the fire and amuse ourselves. Anyway, so this was my quite unlikely, you know, stereotypical... Fantasy man. Fantasy man. Yeah. And I ended up saying this at a gig in Ireland and my yeah. friend said to me, is that true? Do you like Irish friends? And I said, yes, it is true. She said, I know an Irish man that I Who think you cottage. might like. He doesn't live in a cottage. He's not poor or a poet. But one out of three ain't bad, is it? <laughs> so she threw a party for the sole purpose of us meeting. We met. He opened his mouth. And I was like... I could wake up to that accent every day. That will do. And we talked for eight hours, swapped emails, wrote to each other every day for months. And he came over to London. One bam, two weeks later, we were in France. And I very wisely informed him that I thought I loved him. <laughs> this was me. Waiting. This would be trying to be restrained and mature. And I told him I loved him in the middle of the night. I tried to soften the blow. I said, Kevin, I think I love you a bit. (laughs) And what was his response? (sighs) He said, I think I love you too. (laughs) And that was nine and a half years ago. And um, shortly into the relationship, he gave me the wobbly mug. I love the way that he views life and, you know, he kind of finds interesting, different and beautiful. And like he always says to me, you know, if I could press a button and make you normally, I wouldn't, I'd hate it. And I feel so lucky because he's embodied all my dreams of what love should be and he's exceeded them. Oh, you can't say you can't say better than that. Now, your book is extremely honest, but how did it feel when it came to sharing your story? Well, I, a lot of people ask me that. I think they assume it must have been quite challenging. But you've got to remember, I've been doing stand-up comedy or sit-down comedy yeah. for 16 years now, and that's really got me very used to opening up my life because I want to be the kind of of performer who you feel there's not an act. So when people come and see me, I want them to feel that it's like... You're getting the real you. A friend who's being totally honest and opening their life up. And writing some of it, as I say, was challenging because I had to go back to quite dark places and I found it quite upsetting so I would cry at points but I've got to say God is cheaper than 10 years in therapy like it's incredibly (laughs) cathartic to write about experiences that have caused you pain and suffering it's kind of like you transfer them from you onto the page is, is that why you were so determined that you would read your own audiobook so that it was in your voice, so that it was authentically Chess yes. who was on, on record? Yeah, I mean, my publishers, when they said I should record one, they were like, no one else can really read this. Yeah. 
And I guess it's true because it is such an intimate piece in terms of I really try to lay open my own journey. So I guess the key thing for me is I want people to read the book and to liberate themselves from this disempowering culture of I'm not good enough and realise I am good enough and I got to exist on this bit of rock in space and it's bloody amazing. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear one last extract from the audiobook as read by you. Encountering difference is an opportunity to learn, to grow, to reach out, to connect a chance to expand as a human being and challenge afresh your ideas, beliefs, assumptions, insecurities and prejudices. Regardless of the body you're born into, regardless of skin colour or gender or choice of partner or country of birth or working status or income or ability or belief, we all share the same universal human experience. We're all born and we will all die. In between, we live, love, laugh and cry. Everyone's different and that's what makes us all the same. So don't let anyone make you feel abnormal because it doesn't exist. And who wants to be fucking normal anyway? You're hugely helping to change attitudes towards disability and making people laugh along the way. And you've used your comedy platform to campaign for issues that are close to your heart. And you're the face of the War on Welfare campaign group, petitioning the government to assess the impact of cuts for sick and disabled people. What changes do you want to see? Well, it's funny, you know, when you change perspective, you free up a lot of time and energy for other things and and you look outwards and realise, oh my goodness, there are so many issues that are worthy of my worry and time and attention. And in the case of um, disability, you know, uh, many people still do not have a voice um, under this current government Disabled people are being targeted in an incredible way. We actually launched this petition in 2012 and we succeeded in getting the 100,000 signatures, which triggered a debate in Parliament, but surprisingly the Conservatives ignored that. So we're now doing another petition in the hope that we can you know, create more debate. But yes, it's a subject that I'm really, really concerned about because there are so many disabled people around the country having their lives destroyed by these cuts in the name of austerity. So you are going to become an MP next. That's your goal. (laughs) Um, I sleep too much to become an MP. Uh, They (laughs) have to start Parliament at two o'clock. Look, I don't know. I'm very interested in politics and culture. I'm interested in societal change and making things better and and fairer. Whether that has to be through Parliament, I'm not sure. I think we can play our role. I think art and culture can lead political change. Um, I don't think I'm very cut out 
for politics. I think I would swear too much and be too honest and, and not play the game. OK, in conclusion, does the search for a normal person continue for you? <laughs> no, I, I've kind of answered my own question. We're all normal and we're all different and different is normal. Jessica, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. You've nailed it. <laughs> Miles Jupp presents The News Quiz, a long-running satirical panel show that returns for its 89th series, tackling the big and not-so-big events that have been making the headlines. Featuring Jeremy Hardy and a host of guest panellists, they dissect topics as varied as the junior doctor's strike and the US election. Jeremy, who's been searching for the pennies? This is to do with the fact that Google are registered as deceased for tax purposes. <laughs> and they came up with a cosy deal with HMRC. I think HMRC, you'd think they'd have been toughened up by merging with the customs, wouldn't you? Because customs men wear tri-cornered hats and have flintlocks and... <laughs> Burst their way in to, to taverns and seize people's gold. But they, they just sort of had a meeting with Google and said, well, how much would you like to give us? And Google said, not much. And they said, that's fine, thank you. <laughs> and then Cameron had to defend this in the Commons. It's been an emotional week for Cameron because in many ways Cecil Parkinson was the soundtrack to his youth. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, you know... Cameron was jumpy and, they, you know, there was a thing where they've, had to, they've lost a court judgment over the bedroom tax and, uh, so they're a bit, and they're a bit jumpy about the Google thing. So when challenged on this, Cameron went a bit weird and condemned Corbyn for meeting what he called a bunch of migrants whom he contrasted with British people and hard-working taxpayers, making a distinction between British people <laughs> and hard-working taxpayers. <laughs> Can I just defend uh, Cameron for a minute? Because a bunch of is an improvement on a swarm of. Well, that is true. <laughs> well, that, that, that is true. And it, but the, he knew it would get a reaction because it's called the dead cat strategy. And this was used very much by um, the Tory propagandist Lord Crosby of Australia, sure. Um, <laughs> what it is, in, if you're uncomfortable <laughs> with a conversation, you drop a dead cat on the table. So you say something quite horrible, that takes everyone's eyes off the fact that you're talking about tax avoidance and you throw this sort of thing in. And, but then people defended Cameron, saying, well, I think people find it rather refreshing. Well, I mean, one talks about a, a bunch of tulips, doesn't one? But rarely do you say it to stigmatise tulips and keep them out of the country. The News Quiz is available now on iTunes and Audible.